Yes, it is, and welcome back. I was listening to uh, Dennis's show last week, uh, as I uh, often do, and I heard him interviewing great author of a of a important new book. So great uh, was the interview that I I bought the book and downloaded it immediately. The book is The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. And the author is Ashley Rinsberg, who we are delighted we were able to get a hold of. He is in Israel, Ashley is, uh, where a lot of goings-on are taking place, and I thought the book might have some implications for what we're seeing now. Mr. Rinsberg, thanks for joining us. I hope all is well. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. You bet. You bet. You wrote an important book. Uh, I want to spend some time on it. The Gray Lady Winked. But you're a first-time guest, and at the risk of uh, tiring you out, you've probably done a lot of this. Uh, tell my audience, I do this with all my first-time guests, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, how you came to be doing what you're doing and writing this book. Sure. I, um, I've i been in journalism and media um, in various capacities for many, many years, um, well over a decade. And um, in this particular case with this book, I was really, it was more of a fluke. I was reading a book of history, which was William Shirer's famous work of World War II um, called the, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Uh-huh. And I noticed in a little footnote in the book that he just almost casually mentions that the New York Times on the eve of World War II reported that Poland had invaded Germany. And this kind of flies counter to everything we know and assume about World War II, which is, of course, it was a war of aggression by the Nazis. And that kind of triggered this quest for me to understand, A, was that true? B, how could it possibly tr- be true if it was? And C, what more had gone wrong in the New York Times reporting historically and today? And that kind of resulted in this massive research effort and, and eventually culminated in this book. Talk it's such an extraordinary it's such an extraordinary misstatement of actual fact in real time and in the light of history the the notion that Poland invaded Germany. Um how does the New York Times even let that fly or is your thesis that this is for the audience. I've obviously uh, I'm deep into your book now, but for the audience's perspective, Ashley, uh, w- was this the New York Times knowingly telling a lie, knowingly doing the work of the National Socialists, or was it just sloppiness? This was the New York Times turning a blind eye to something they knew was very wrong in their Berlin and Germany reporting in general. On the one hand, and on the other hand, I think a lot of what they saw coming out of their Germany reporting, they felt okay with it. So you had this Berlin bureau chief at the time of the New York Times. His name was Guido Andaris. He was an outright Nazi collaborator. He was getting great scoops and great information and great access from the Germans because they loved him because he favored them in his reporting. And this gave the New York Times a competitive edge. And that's obviously something very important in media then as today. And uh, for them, that was just too sweet an offer to turn down. So when it came to their attention that he was actually writing, reporting the Nazis were rebroadcasting on their own networks, they shut that information down because they wanted those scoops. They wanted to stay competitive um, on the one hand. On the other hand, this went on for 10 years, this kind of pattern, all the way back to the early 1930s. They were reporting kind of in a very sort of, soft and cushy way about Hitler and the rise of Hitler and what that meant for Germany. 
They called the German, uh, the Berlin Nazi Olympics of 1936 the greatest sporting event of all time, mm-hmm. which is quite a, quite a claim to make about an Olympics that didn't allow Jews in it. At, at least they were giving uh, Hitler's perspective, right? They were giving, yeah, at least someone's perspective was included. Yeah, right. It happened to be right. a, a right. genocidal madman. Right. But, you know, the, right. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of what happened there. It was this kind of strange mix of, of factors, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that a very small number of people, that those people being the family that owns this extremely powerful newspaper, we're making decisions about what should be covered, and, and that's where things go really wrong. This is such an important book, folks. The Gray Lady, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the Gray Lady uh, winked, and I have to tell you this: um, this Ashley Rinsberg, worth reading. R i n d s b e r g. R i n d s b e r g is how he spells his last name. Ashley, one of the things that's so interesting about that story, and really the rest of your book is everyone knows, everyone who studies New York Times or media bias knows one name, um, Walter Durante. Mm -hmm. And uh, what leftists will tell you or supporters of the New York Times, may I put it that way, will tell you is, you guys, um, that's run its shelf life. Uh, That one off of Walter Mm -hmm. Durante, you know, you've you've gotten your your payload from it. Can we move on? What you've uncovered is that Walter Durante was hardly an isolated example of one piece of bad food on the shelf. Uh, there was a terrible diet the New York Times has been has been uh, has been providing us for a long time on a lot of fronts that cover up for dictators, right? Yeah, you know, and even Walter Durante, people like to kind of put that in a little container, just as you're saying, and say, you know, this was one guy. He he was whatever he was, slovenly or made a mistake or evil, whatever he was. But that's not really the story. Because Walter Durante was, in fact, a brilliant guy and an excellent journalist. And when you think about what he was accused of doing, which is covering up the Ukraine famine, and the Ukraine famine was a genocide perpetrated by Stalin in order order to sort of consolidate power in the early days of his rule, that no journalist on earth would give up that big of a story. That's, That's the scoop of all scoops. And you think to yourself, again, this question of, why? Why would Durante do such a thing? And the answer is he would not do such a thing. The reason it happened is because the New York Times' ownership and management instructed him, by his own admission, to cover up the famine. And that's the real lie with Durante. So Durante, even even looking at that one case, which the Times has tried to say he's slovenly or he's this or he's that, but that was just a deflection. And really to what you're saying is that Yes, this was a pattern. It was a pattern that was not just Durante. It happened with uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba, which the New York Times... Can, yeah, talk to, to us about rising. Castro. I, I've been on Castro for a lot sure. a lot of reasons lately. Give, give us the New York Times and their selling of Fidel Castro, if you wouldn't mind. Fidel Castro in the late 1950s was sort of a down-and-out, failed rebel. He just he had no money, no guns, almost no no fighters on his side. He was sort of lost in the mountains of Cuba, and he got to the point where the uh, the regime, the Batista regime at the time, they weren't even looking for him anymore. He was not relevant. Along comes a New York Times reporter named Herbert Matthews, who decides this is the romantic figure we've all been waiting for, and sort of unilaterally declares Fidel Castro 
to be the democratic savior of Cuba. He seeks him out, he goes to find him in the mountains, he writes these incredibly romantic stories, one after the next, and this is the, the messiah of Cuban democracy that we all need. And lo and behold, you know, the New York Times declared it, and so it was within a few weeks or months. Castro really had become that in the world stage. He caught the attention of the Soviet Union. He got the weapons, the money, the attention, the prestige, and the backing that he needed to pull off a revolution. And it wasn't long after that that he actually, as we know, did pull off that revolution. And he attributed so much of his own success to the New York Times helping him that he actually went to New York, went to the New York Times building, went upstairs to whatever floor it was at the time to shake the publisher's hand and say, thank you, not once and not even twice, three times he thanked the New York Times for what they did for him because he understood how significant it was. Wow. I I can't help but say in passing, Ashley, that it reminds me a little bit of America and Cuba, irrespective of the New York Times under Barack Obama. Cuba was failing and failing and failing, obviously, under the Castros, right? It had the Soviet Union to bail them out. They go away. Venezuela comes in and rushes right in to bail out. Castro, Venezuela falls apart. The Castro regime is about to crumble, and in rushes the United States to save them, just like the New York Times saved Fidel Castro. It seems to me eerily... um, metaphorically uh, comparative. But you're in Israel, Ashley uh, Rinsberg, and it would be um, it would be a conceit if I didn't ask you about the current goings-on uh, right now, especially with the Sheikh Jara, I don't know what they're called there, Intifada uprisings, and what you have uncovered and what you wrote about in your book, The Grey Lady Winked, about a name that a lot of people have forgotten but was quite prominent once upon a time, not too long ago, Mohammed al-Dura. I have to take a quick radio commercial break. I'm wondering, can you stick around and, and, and talk to us about Aldura and contemporary uprising in Israel right now? Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our guest is Ashley Rinsberg, R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. His brand new book, can't download it or order it fast enough. I ordered it the minute I heard him interviewed, the moment I heard him interviewed last week, The Gray Lady winked. Ashley Rinsberg and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have with us uh, author and journalist Ashley Rinsberg. R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G is how Ashley spells his last name. His brand new book, The Gray Lady Winked, talking about Basically, if I could summarize it or give it a subtitle, which it doesn't have now, uh, (laughs) it's a better subtitle than I was going to give it. My subtitle was uh, How the New York Times Harms Civilization. Uh, But, of course, uh, his his subtitle will do. (laughs) Uh, Ashley's will. Yeah, tell us your subtitle, Ashley. I have the book open, so I only have the main title. Sure. The the subtitle is How the New York Times is Misreporting, Distortions, and Fabrications Radically Alter History. There you go. Radically Alter History. Um, Talk to us about who Aldura was, Ashley, and then let's talk about the way the media handles Israel generally as it is doing so again now. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, Mohammed Aldura was a a boy, 11-year-old boy, I believe at the time. This was in 2000. Um, at the start of the Second Intifada, the, the Palestinian uprising, 
Um, he was traveling with his father, and, and uh, it's not very clear why, but he ended up in a, at a junction where there was a gun battle between Palestinian terror factions and Israeli soldiers. And he was caught in this very infamous video towering behind this concrete sort of barrel taking cover from fire. And that's all the camera shows you. It's his father and the son. It's very dramatic. He's taking cover. Then there's sort of a, a, a jostle in the camera. Then the boy is kind of laid out on his father's lap. Um, and the narration that people got about this was that Israelis were firing at the boy and the father and had eventually shot the boy and killed him and shot the father, too. And this is Israelis kill an 11-year-old boy in his father's arms was the story, basically. Exactly. That was the story. And that was the story the New York Times ran with. Pretty much, I, I, if I get the dates right, it was right about the day after the event. That means there was no time for an investigation, not even a journalistic investigation. There was no New York Times reporter on the ground. There was no reporters at all on the ground. No, no one from, no foreign correspondents, nobody. They were relying on random video shot by a Palestinian nationalist who had admitted a Palestinian nationalist who was hiding fact. And that's what the New York Times concluded was that Israeli soldiers had essentially murdered this boy in cold blood. But what they really did with it, and this is the kicker, is they declared him a quote-unquote symbol of the conflict, right. meaning there's this innocent Palestinian victim of Israeli violence who was symbolic or emblematic of everything that was going on. It turns out, a few years later, there was a libel court, a libel trial in, in France regarding this, an independent French forensic expert and ballistics expert who examined the footage, examined all the evidence, found there was, in his words, no way that the Israeli fire could have wounded, let alone killed, this boy. It was, he said, physically impossible. This is a third party in Europe who had nothing to do with the case. It was purely expertise. And after that, it's as if, from the New York Times perspective, it just kind of evaporated. Right. It went quiet, radio silence. And no correcting the record, no addressing. The deed was, was done. No, you're right. The deed was done. Uh, yes, uh, Palestinians exactly. resort to terror bombs and violence because the conflict is symbolized by Israel's um, cold and uh, cruel uh, routine shooting of children in their father's arms. Basically, that was that was the line that was propagated. That was the line that won the day. A hundred percent, and it was very much connected to the larger narrative they built around. The Intifada. The Intifada at that time was a, a years-long terror war waged by the Palestinian factions, the terror factions. And again, this is something that they admitted. They they came out later. Marwan Barghouti, one of their leaders, said, we had been planning the uprising for months. Right. The New York Times tried to peg it on the visit of then-Transportation uh, Minister Ariel Sharon, who was a famous general in Israel, to the Temple Mount to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, where we're seeing a lot of the fighting happening today. Um, so they wanted, again, to fit that narrative into the Israeli aggressor, Palestinian victim kind of archetype, that, that mold that they had built, and they bent over backwards to do it, despite the fact, again, that a, that a U.S. Senator, George Mitchell, launched an investigation to look into the origins of the, of the fighting and found that it was not the visit of the Israeli politician, but it was, in fact, Palestinian terror factions planning this intifada. But again, the New York Times pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded away 
kept this narrative until they built it, and they did succeed in building the narrative, just like they're doing today. And that's the point, just like they're doing today, CBS, the New York Times, the mainstream media has a Israel reporting problem, uh, doesn't it? Uh, how, how would you summarize it, Ashley Rinsberg? What is the media's problem with Israel? Is it hard? You know, I mean, I you're in I, Israel. You're a journalist in Israel. I've been yeah. I've been there. Is it hard? Uh, is, it, is it hard to report there? I happen to think it isn't because it's such an open society, which I would always think would make things easier. Or is mm-hmm. it something Gene Kirkpatrick once said about the Middle East, which is compassion comes before comprehension too often? Mm. Well, you know what? I, I was just talking to someone today who works very closely with journalists here. And she had spoken with someone at the New York, formerly at the New York Times, so I won't say the name. And, you know, what, what she was saying was that this man, this reporter, he faced intimidation on the ground from the Palestinian side to report things a certain way. So Israel is very much an open society. We have free press. We have a lot of left-wing journalism in this country, a lot of diversity of opinion in the media. But that's not the case in the Palestinian territories where there is very much a strong-arm rule, and if you don't toe the party line, you end up in a bad situation. And that that applies to foreign correspondents as well, even if it's just not getting access to the, the to the sources that they need. So there's a pressure on them to, to sort of toe that line. But I think there's also something beyond that, okay. which is that they have in their minds a, a narrative about what's happening here, and that's the same thing I just mentioned, Israeli aggressor, Palestinian victim. It's very black and white for them. There's no shape of gray, and that's a big problem. Do you have to run, or do you have one more segment left in you? I know it's late there in Israel, but I'd love to keep you one more if I, I have. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm good. We, we got you wired up. Good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, take a quick <laughs> break. What I would like, Ashley, if you could, when we come back, tell us a little bit about what is uh, the fight and dispute about right now in the uh, what, what, what I'm calling the Sheikh Jarrah uh, uh, uprising, but you tell me the better way to call it and, and what we do need to know, if you don't mind. You're on the ground in Israel, and I'd like you to cut through the, um, the baloney that we're getting from the New York Times. Uh, CNN admitted to this, didn't it? Wasn't it Eason Jordan some years ago? They had that problem with Saddam Hussein. We'll talk more about this all when we come back with Ashley Rinsberg. His book, The Gray Lady Winked, how the New York Times misreporting, distortions, and fabrications radically alter history. You bet they do. Ashley has their number, and we'll be right back with him on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted. We did this last minute. I can't thank him enough uh, for his book and for his time. And that's uh, Ashley Rinsberg, his brand new book, The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. I was reading what he wrote about the Aldura incident in Israel, and then it dawned on me, Ashley is in Israel. And uh, in real time, there is a um, uprising taking place, and the media is doing what it usually does. Ashley, can you tell us in America what we need to know about the current uprising, its causes, and uh, what we're seeing now? Sure, yeah. I, you know, there's a few different causes here. I think this the initial violence started a week or two ago where um, Palestinians in East Jerusalem were gathering on certain stairs in outside of Jerusalem or within just outside the old city, and the Israeli authorities were trying to break it up on account of COVID reasons because they still didn't want people gathering 
in close quarters, and that already started a lot of unrest. And then another issue popped up contributing to it, which is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem where the, there are a number of families, Palestinian families, who have not paid their rent, and under Israeli law, they are could be evicted by their landlords. And this is really kind of what has triggered um, this latest round of fighting in Jerusalem as it's gotten more and more intense. And now at the same time, the Hamas terror organization in Gaza has begun firing rockets um, at Israeli civilian centers. I think we're at about 150 rockets as as of now, if I get that right, mm-hmm. at least 100. Mm. Um, so it's really coming in on all sides, as it usually does. Um, and then the media is kind of jumping in with its own, to frame it in its own way. And that's, you know, almost a reflex at this point. So we're seeing sort of the, the military side of things, and we're seeing the media side of things, and it's, it's just as it happens in Israel so much, all at once. Uh, what we get, by and large, just so you know, Ashley, and I know you, you've obviously studied um, a lot here and are from here originally, but what we're getting just lately, the last uh, two, three days really on this, is that um, is that there is a uh, pushback against uh, the Israelis and the Israeli government that is engaging in the uh, claiming of, the taking over of, the deprivation of property of Palestinians uh, for no reason other than uh, territorial uh, expansion and Judaization of uh, d- disputed territories. Few things could be further from the truth about that than what I just said, but that is the narrative, correct? That is definitely the narrative. I, I just have read recently a New York Times article that really just stated it outright. I mean, this isn't a news story where they're going to bat. They say something like, um, for many Palestinians, and that's always a cue when you see this kind of group sourcing, as if the Times reporter had gone out and asked thousands and thousands of these people, but of course they haven't. They're just speaking on their behalf. They said for many Palestinians, the families in, in this area's quote-unquote plight has become emblematic of a wider effort to remove Palestinians from East Jerusalem. Right, right. Um, and right there, they're framing the whole news article in a little piece of editorial that just does a really effective job at, at pulling at those emotions, no matter what the fact might be. It, it, okay, let's do the fact real quick. Is Israel trying to wholesale evict Palestinians from East Jerusalem? No, of course not. And, you know, the, the Israeli government, both the, the municipality in Jerusalem and the larger Israeli government, is working very hard to enfranchise and to empower the Arab citizens and Arab residents of Israel, which we see in evidence as um, in the recent elections, we had an actual Islamist party who won enough votes to be influential in building a coalition government. And the right-wing parties in Israel were trying to bring this Islamist party into the government, which, you know, that's something that boggles the mind of people who are anti-Israel, and that, which is why they ignore it. But when you've got right-wing Israeli parties inviting a, a Arab Islamist party into their government, you really have something that bursts the narrative. And the most convenient way to sort of neutralize that is just to ignore it, and that's exactly what they've done. So you've got the, the, the reality of the situation here, and then you've got the, what I just read, that, that kind of, you know, the family's plight has become emblematic, the symbol building that goes on, which is not using any kind of sourcing, not using any kind of data, not using any kind of numbers. It's just a plain assertion, a speculation. 
Well, thank you for that, Ashley Rinsberg, and thank you for your book and for Green to come on so quickly. We just put this together very uh, rapidly. So I appreciate it, sir, including your time. And I hope it can be a down payment. I'd love to have you back. You can help explain a mind I don't quite understand, a mind dedicated to promoting evil uh, and civilization destruction. Yes, thank you, sir. The book, once more, let me give it to you in full. The Gray Lady Winked, How the New York Times Misreporting Distortions and Fabrications Radically Alter History. The author, of course, Ashley Rinsberg. Just uh, available now. Thank you, sir. Um, We'll talk soon. Thank you, sir. Bless you. Stay safe. Welcome back. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Let me uh, put in a a good word for my friends at Trades Unlimited, one of our newest sponsors for all your air conditioning needs. Such a great company uh, operating in Phoenix almost 30 years, A-plus rating with the BBB. I I have been down to their warehouses and offices and met with them. The Trades Unlimited people, great people, great people, great work ethic. Their pride in the quality of their craftsmanship is what they stand by and what they commit to you. Right now, they're promoting foam roofs, which help insulate your homes from extreme Arizona heat, but also insulate your home from exterior noises and, most importantly, water leaks. Trades Unlimited is available at Trades. I mean, you can reach them at TradesUnlimited.com or give them a call at 480-483. That's 480-483-1775, 480-483-1775. 480-483-1775, 480-483-1775, or tradesunlimited.com. Quality and services, what you'll come to know with Trades Unlimited. The hot summer sun, perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Give Trades Unlimited a call for that or all your roofing needs. Tradesunlimited.com. Uh, speaking with Ashley, it reminded me of something. You know, it seems just about every 10 years or so, there is a series of incidents um, that are ginned up uh, and um, framed uh, for Western media that the Palestinian uh, media propaganda machine is quite good at uh, nurturing, nursing, and engaging. And uh, see, really, every 10 years, uh, 83, you saw it, 93, uh, you've seen it again, uh, uh, right after 9-11, 2003, and uh, 2013 with Barack Obama uh, putting pressure on Israel. Here we are again. And I remember in 02, when Israel was facing a lot of criticism at one of the oddest of times, uh, especially as our war against terrorism was ginning up in earnest, Israel was under a lot of pressure in the international community. And uh, I was working with, as many of you know, William Bennett, Jack Kemp, and Gene Kirkpatrick, their think tank. It was called Empower America. And uh, they said to me, uh, Seth, uh, put out something. We think it'll get a pretty good response. No one else in the media is going to do it. Put out 20 facts on Israel and the Middle East uh, and uh, and uh, under our name and work with Gene particularly on this. So I wrote a first draft and I faxed it over to Gene. We used faxes in those days, believe it or not. And she called me back, and um, I worked a lot more closely with Bill and Jack than I did with Jean because she wasn't in the office that much. Um, and 
in an odd way, I don't know if this makes sense, I guess because I didn't work with her as closely, I was a little more intimidated by her in a way. Um, if that makes any sense, I don't know. She just struck me as that way and for no reason but my own internal angst. So she called me once she got the draft and she said, it's okay. And I said, too strong. And she said, not quite strong enough. And she gave me all these edits, and you can still get it online. It's called 20 Facts About Israel and the Middle East by Jack Kemp, Bill Bennett, and Gene Kirkpatrick. And I'll just give you the first three that I think may be a better framing of what's going on now in the media and Israel than anything you're going to get in the New York Times or CBS. Roots of the conflict. One, when the United Nations proposed the establishment of two states in the region, one Jewish, one Arab, which is what happened, folks. There were two states proposed here, okay? For those that talk about a two-state solution, it ain't new. There was one. It was given out by the UN in 1947. And when it was released, uh, the Jews accepted the proposal and declared their independence as a state in 1948. Guess who never did? The Palestinians, um, because they did not want a Jewish state of any size or shape anywhere. Uh, the Jewish state constituted only uh, one-sixth of one percent of what was known as the Arab world, by the way, the Middle East. The Jewish state, one-sixth of one percent of that territory, okay? The Arab states, however, rejected the UN plan and since then have waged war against Israel repeatedly, both all-out wars and wars of terrorism and attrition. In 1948, when Israel declared its independence, just so you know, immediately five Arab armies invaded in an effort to eradicate it. You can get quote after quote after quote, but this one will do. Jamal Husseini of the Arab Higher Committee went on radio and broadcast that he would, quote, soak the soil of our beloved country with the last drop of blood, close quote. That's how they talked then. By the way, it's how they talk now. Two, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, it was founded in 1964, three years before Israel even had the West Bank and Gaza. Now, the PLO's declared purpose was to eliminate the state of Israel by means of armed struggle. To this day, the website of the PLO or the Palestinian Authority claims that the entirety of Israel is still occupied territory, not just places like Bethlehem and Jenin, but all of Israel. It is impossible to square this with the PLO and Palestinian assertions to Western audiences that the root of the conflict is Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. If the root of the conflict is West Bank and Gaza, which Israel acquired in 1967, ask someone why the PLO was founded in 1964 when the Arabs had the West Bank and Gaza. Shall I do that again? If West Bank and Gaza are the root causes of the antagonism against Israel, Israel acquired the West Bank and Gaza in 1967. The PLO was founded in 1964. If West Bank and Gaza are the problems, then why did the PLO found itself in 1964, three years before Israel had the West Bank and Gaza, and indeed while the Arabs had the West Bank and Gaza? The West Bank in Gaza was controlled by uh, Egypt and Jordan, by the way, from 48 to 67. 
and um, came under Israeli control in 1967 when Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran and Arab armies amassed on Israel's borders to invade and liquidate Israel. Um, They started the war. They lost the war. Israel took the territories. But those territories are in no way the reason for the dispute. The reason for the dispute is not Bethlehem, and it's not Janine. It's Tel Aviv. It's Haifa. It's Jerusalem. It's everything. As long as I'm on this kick and giving you a little uh, a little of this uh, history from this piece, Jack Kemp and Bill Bennett and Gene Kirkpatrick wrote some years ago, 20 Facts About Israel in the Middle East. You can Google it. Just put in Bennett, Kemp, Kirkpatrick, 20 Facts About Israel in the Middle East. I'll just close the show with this because the amount of propaganda is pretty intense. Um, despite claims that it is the Israeli settlements in the West Bank which are new – and obstacles to peace, it's important to know Jews lived in that area for centuries. For centuries. They suffered massacres and pogroms. They were driven out of their neighborhoods. There were all kinds of anti-Jewish massacres. And indeed, Adolf Hitler worked with the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem during World War II, making the claims of people like Rashida Tlaib not only false, but hilariously so. Um, contrary to common misperceptions, uh, you would think the Israeli settlements are, you know, large and wide neighborhoods, like something you'd see, I don't know, in Awatuki or Scottsdale. Uh, they're not. The Israeli settlements constitute less than 2% of the territories, less than 2% of the West Bank, in other words. Do you understand that the Jewish claims and settlements on the West Bank constitute 2% of that property. Gaza, by the way, which was also taken by Israel, was wholly turned over to the Palestinian. 90% of the land Israel took in 1967 was returned or given, I should say, to sovereign Arab entities. The Sinai to Egypt... Gaza to the Palestinians, with what did they do with it? With what did they do with this beautiful coastal territory? They put Hamas in charge and turned it into a hellhole. As has been said before, when it comes to discussions of the Palestinians' claims in Israel, it's not about hunger, folks. It's about appetite. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, class dismissed.